Um, if you guys have a Bible, you can go to Acts chapter 14. And if I could ask you all to just do a small favor or however you want to do it, draw a little M on your hand or in your Bible or a journal or something, but if you could just remember to pray for Madison, I would, I'd love to know that ongoing, that we as a community are doing this. So that would be um, very sweet for them, for us. And then you guys, we obviously will get to see what the Lord can do. So thank you guys for being so vulnerable, sharing with us. So Acts chapter 14, um, if you have one of our borrowed Bibles, it's page 637 for you. As, as I was thinking about Brian and Amy sharing their story, and as I'm sitting there listening, I, my mind couldn't help go to the person who hasn't been at a church gathering in quite some time. My mind couldn't help, my thoughts couldn't help going to the person who is maybe new to this idea of Christianity. Um, you might be prone to think as they explain the complications of their daughter, but yet they're saying how grateful they are that you might be thinking, okay, holy smokes, they've gone mad. Like they're crazy. What are they talking about? Which, and again, I, I wrestle my mind. What brings individuals like themselves with fearsome and uncertain circumstances to a place of gratitude? What does that to somebody? And this can be often the question I think that we all ask, especially during the holidays, that how am I supposed to be grateful during Thanksgiving when my heart is broken? How am I supposed to be grateful during Thanksgiving with the complications of my, heart, my daughter's heart? How am I supposed to be grateful this Thanksgiving when I've experienced heartbreak and everything's falling apart and I just feel numb? I think gratitude and thanksgiving are these really easy everyday words, right? They're super easy everyday words and extremely hard to live a grateful life. See, it's one thing to say, thank you, you know, thank you, out of repetition. And it's like another dimension to actually be grateful. And I was thinking, what if... Through all this, despite how hard it is to live and us trying to find it in the Thanksgiving season or any season or any holiday, imagine this. Imagine how crazy this is. What if we never fully experience anything? What if we never fully experience anything until we express Thanksgiving over it? What if every element in life is only a percentage of its actual worth until we become grateful for it? Maybe these words from a pastor can make the point stronger. Uh, He says, the greatest thing is to give thanks for everything. He who has learned this knows what it means to what? To just hang out, to have a good time. He has learned to what? To live. He has penetrated the whole mystery of life. Giving thanks for everything. Giving thanks for a heart complication with my daughter. Giving thanks for everything to, pen, to, to penetrate the whole mystery of life. I mean, think about that. He's talking about giving thanks is the, is the penetration of the mystery of life. You would think it is to love is the, you know, the, the mystery of life, or to be loved is the wholeness of life. But Thanksgiving? So, not only this holiday week, but all of life, tonight, whatever, I want to label and uncover this posture of thanksgiving and how it brings wholeness. And maybe some of you are thinking right now, cool, way, yeah, a a sermon on thanksgiving. Heard it. I I would hope tonight 
tonight would be refreshing new for your hearts. But I believe that we'll discover how the posture of Thanksgiving brings wholeness and how to fully live within an amazing moment within the book of Acts, the New Testament book of Acts. See, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, um, it's outrageous. It's an outrageous book. So if you're looking for what it means to be a real, uh, authentic follower of Christ, read the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. It's a page filled with mysteries and moments and movements and mission. And for tonight, we eavesdrop on a situation where two missionaries had been sent out by the local church. And this is the first official missionary expedition that we really see within the book of Acts. And for those of you who care about what I'm about to say next and pay attention, everybody else, whatever. But this happened around 44 AD. If you want to write that down, cool, whatever. This happened around 44 AD. It lasted about two years. This first missionary trip lasted about two years. And for you history Bible buff nerds, this is the shortest duration and the shortest of destinations out of all the missionary trips we see within the book of Acts. And so as our two missionaries are traveling from region to region, there is minor success here and there, but then they enter a village unlike anything they've seen before. Anything we've seen yet within the book of Acts. And it's a town called Lystra. Now, if somebody were to describe Lystra, you would probably go along the lines of describing it like, oh, it's more of a, a backwater type of place. Oh, Lystra's a little rustic. Lystra's home to some common folk. Uh, imagine like an old, beaten down western city. That's Lystra. There's a lot of banjos, there's a lot of harmonicas, there's a lot of people dipping and chewing and spitting in straw hats type of place. And these common folks in these little towns have been patiently waiting for one thing. One thing. Their entire existence, they're waiting for one thing. Actually, two. Here, I'm going to say it right now. They're waiting for uh, gods to walk through their gate. They've been waiting their entire life for gods to enter their little, little western village. That is their everything. You see, these wild Lyconian people have an ancient legend that centuries ago, Zeus and Hermes came down to earth disguised as mortal man. And what Zeus and Hermes did is they went around like knocking on people's door, knocking on people's door to see if anybody would show hospitality and let them in. And the entire town of Lystra rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected. Then finally, some old elderly couple, as the legend says, this old uh, elderly couple let them in, and these gods turned their little run-down shack home into a glorious temple and made them immortals. So now the people of Lystra said, oh, no, 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 we will never make that mistake again. When gods walk through our gates, we will be ready. We will be immortalized. We will be pumped. So let's look at, uh, starting in verse 8, let's look down and read this together. Again, they've been waiting patiently for their return. So verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked, ever. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. 
Now, as amazing as this miracle is, this is not the point of the verses. But we're reading now, this is not the point. For all intents and purposes, this gospel revival that they were hoping to see in Lystra was doomed before it even began. We're about to see basically a failed revival. See, the moment this man sprang up, imagine everything's chill, everything's calm. There's like one of those hay bale things, whatever, running through the town. Everything's relaxed. And then you hear Paul yell these words, stand upright and walk. And this man who's been in the town probably his entire life springs up. Can you just imagine? Can you imagine the audience's eyes going wide? Can you imagine the pounding hearts? What are they thinking? (laughs) Right? The gods have come. Right? The gods are here. Oh, mama. They've got to be. Look at verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now be warned, these next verses we'll be reading happen in very fast succession. Our two missionaries are about to be thrown in a twister or tornado. They have no idea what's going on. Look at verse 12. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. So Paul and Barnabas, our missionaries, are hearing people scream. They're hearing people shout in their native tongue. And they're just like, what's up? They have no idea. Are they responding to the miracle? Are they about to kill us? They have no idea what's going on. I think it's quite hilarious that they're at a complete loss, but something's about to happen. Something crazy is about to happen. I'll never forget years and, and years ago, um, I went on many, many missionary trips to Taiwan. And it was, they were always great trips, but one particular trip, I remember we were walking down this very busy road, and there's scooters going around you everywhere, and there was like 20 kids. We were all in high school, like 20 kids. We all have matching shirts. We have our backpacks on, totally naive. But then this giant bus full of students starts driving by us, and they had all their windows down, and they just start screaming, <sighs> freaking out, pointing at us, And they were just going nuts. So the bus driver, for some reason, cut all of us off, and he let all the students out. And so we're standing there in the middle of the road, and all of these Taiwanese students start pouring out of the bus. And they start screaming, Brad Pitt! And they start screaming, I think they called my sister Jennifer Aniston, and they're screaming all these celebrities' names. And they're like, can we get your autograph? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Like I was signing all sorts of autographs. But here's the funniest part. No, this is so true. They're telling all of my friends, like, oh my gosh, you look so good. You're Brad Pitt. You're this. I'm like, who do I look like? And they're like, we don't know. <laughs> like, aren't you our bus driver? I was like, oh. Like, I was always so hurt because all of my really like, good-looking friends had all these, whatever. I don't want to get into it. It's a lot of bitterness. But Paul and Barnabas, or Zeus and Hermes to them, they see, here's that moment. They see a priest walking over with a big old ox. And this, this ox is like covered in garland. 
And they're thinking, I mean, wouldn't you be thinking that? Everybody's screaming, you can't understand the language, and they walk up a big old ox, and it's all like decorated. They're thinking, these people are freaky. Like, what is happening? Then it connects. Then it makes sense to them right in the moment at verse 14. Look at everything makes sense. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. They're crying out, men, why are you doing this? Why are you doing these things? We also are men of nature, of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. We bring you good news. We are not the good. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, this is Paul continuing to speak. He led all the nations to walk in their ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. And I love this. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's a Thanksgiving verse, right? So basically, though, that's it. That's all Paul says. That's all we have. I mean, if you, if you looked at or read anything in the book of Acts about people's sermons, we're missing a quite a bit here. There's no mention of the name of Jesus, right? There's no mention of Christ's birth and death and resurrection. Paul's not citing the Old Testament. There's no C.S. Lewis quote, right? What, what is he thinking? There's no, there's no you know, three points all starting with the letter P. There's no stupid story about him being ugly in Taiwan. Okay. Why? Well, obviously, Paul gets cut off. Paul's gonna, he's getting cut off by what's happening. But I believe there's more to it than that. I believe there's more to it. See, this is the first time we see Christians or church leaders or missionaries or whoever speaking to those who know nothing about the Bible. They know zilch about Jesus. All other people who have come to know and follow Jesus from Acts 1 to about Acts 13 had some sort of biblical framework. They were sneaking in on temples. They were listening. They were in synagogues. They had some kind of idea, but not these guys. That's why Paul, when he's explaining God, he doesn't start with, well, you know, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people of Lystra would have been like, who, who, who? We know Zeus. We know Hermes. We know Jupiter. We know Mercury. That's who they know. But this Abe fellow, all these other, we don't know who you're talking about. See, Lystra is very, um, this city is a very extreme pluralistic society. It's a polytheistic pluralistic society. All of that meaning there is no one God. There's no one God. There is no supreme God. Get your exclusivity out of here. There, in their town, there was uh, many to be worshipped. Now, why is this germane to us? Why does this matter to us? What city does this sound like? It's probably our own. Los Angeles, right? There are many facets of worship here within Los Angeles. There are many temples, so to speak, for those in the great metropolis. Um, think of some. Think of some of the many facets of worship here in Los Angeles. But power, right? Sex, self-identity, entertainment, enterprises, industry, music, the arts, so on in L.A. and so on in L.A. and so on in L.A. Now here's, here's what's dangerous about a pluralistic 
or a polytheistic society. See, a choose-your-own-God, autonomous, self-determined, polytheistic culture where it looks like, no, no, I'm in control. I determine who I want to worship. I I choose where I worship, how I worship, when I worship, and who I worship. And I can change that at any moment. See, the truth is with a polytheistic culture or a pluralistic culture, the truth is we've never been in control. Here's what I mean. If there are idols in our lives that we worship, they are in full control of us, of our every move. What I mean is if we are living for power, we're not in control of our lives. We're mastered by what will ever bring us to or keep us in power. If we're living for fame, we're not in control of our lives. We're mastered by whatever will bring us or keep us in fame. And that list will go so on and so on and so on. This is what the Bible, um, the Bible addresses this. And the Bible says that's enslavement. The Bible would call that enslavement. The Apostle Peter and church leader, or excuse me, yeah, the Apostle Peter, church leader, you guys, you guys remember from early on in Acts. He, he said in a letter of his, and I'm going to read it, it should be on the screen. He's talking about this enslavement. He says, these are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud, boast of folly, they notice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. And get this, they promise them freedom. These gods, these idols, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So our missionaries, knowing this, what is their plea to the people? They know there are many gods, so what is their plea to the people? Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should what? That you should turn from vain things to a living God. Anybody here, Anybody in this room enslaved by idols, the Bible would say you are in need of a new master. God would say you are in need of a new master. Jesus would say you are in need of a new master. You are in need, I am in need of a living God. I think that word vain, I don't know about you, but that's, it's intense. You're a Christian here or not a Christian here, that's an intense word. Whatever you're doing, that's vain, that's vanity. Other translations would say, would use the word worthless. I'm trying to get you away from these worthless things. I mean, that word worthless, it's thick and it cuts deep. Now, let me clarify. Are all these, are all these, um, these gods of the West Side, these idols of those, are these bad things? No. No, not at all. Is business worthless? No. Is the industry worthless? No. Is sex worthless? No. Is power worthless? No. Of course not. But them as gods is extremely worthless. They make horrible gods. See, worthless meaning um, empty, deceptive, ineffective. These, these type of gods, these gods that Paul and Barnabas are experiencing with these people, they're basically telling them, telling them they're imploring with them that these gods are empty, but they promise so much and do not deliver. 
They will leave you empty. They promise fulfillment. They will leave you empty. So then what does Paul do? He flips this all on its head. Turn from these vain things. He flips it on his head. What does he say? But my God is counter to all of that. The Christian God is counter to all of that. The living God gives far more than he requires. Do you know that about the Christian faith? The living God gives far more than he requires. So you turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And Paul is just ranting about ocean and fish. And then what do you say? For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seas and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Have any of us ever once paid for the rain? Done anything to make it rain? Well, maybe, I don't know. There's a lot of dancers here. I don't know. So here's what I'd say. Friends, hear me tonight, especially those, hear me tonight, especially those who do not follow Jesus or believe in God. Only the God of the Bible, the living God, if you follow him, will liberate you from vain worship. Only the living God from the Bible will liberate you from vain worship. Everything else, hear me. This is Paul's plea. This is Barnabas's plea. This is my plea. Everything else will enslave you. And maybe you're not seeing it now. Maybe things are hot. Yeah, things are going good. They will eventually enslave you, promising you fulfillment, and you will come up empty-handed. They are slave drivers. So Paul says, turn to God. Paul says, consider God. Paul says, acknowledge God. And it's here Paul addresses our intro's question. So let's slow down for a moment because I think the mystery of life that is found in gratitude because giving thanks is about connection. Thanksgiving is about a connection. I want us to see that when we give thanks, it's about a connection. Paul connects everything. He's ranting about everything and Paul connects it to its maker. Paul is ranting and connecting all these gifts, random things he goes off and says. And what's he immediately do? He connects the gift to the giver. Paul is basically going off about correcting their life and he connects it to a living God. So if I could very quickly, and if you want to write these down, whatever, but if I could very quickly just give four uh, brief Thanksgiving observations, four gratitude observations from our verses, uh, Paul's episode tonight. And you can write them down if you want. They're nothing profound at all, but allow these to sort of inform our holiday weekend. So just four observations from these verses. Again, the first one, I believe, is, is important, but Paul in his sermon uncovers that our faith, the Christian faith, and our reason for Thanksgiving cannot be man-made. Cannot be man-made. Does, is Paul's list including your careers? All your money? Is he including like this amazing talent they have? I gave you the gift to play guitar. Like, what, is he going off about these things? Not a single part of it. He literally gives a, a list that nobody here can take claim over. Not a single person. So gratitude isn't just some self-based reaction because Thanksgiving is all about receiving. Not just, I'm not talking about the holiday, you know that. Thanksgiving is about receiving. You see, Paul's list is made up of elements that we receive from a living God. Again, I, it's just so perfect as he's talking about rain and it rained today. You just look out your window. There's only one being person that can make it rain. Nothing in this list we have control over. 
Second observation, Paul is having us turn. Paul says turn from vain things to a living God. Gratitude is all about turning. Gratitude has movement. Paul says turn and look. Turn and look at all that he has created freely for you and for I. Turn and look to a God. And he's basically saying, turn and look to God. Turn and look to gratitude and turn away from dread. Turn away from lack. Turn away from fear. So turn to God and there we will discover gratitude. So again, thanksgiving is far from passive, from the folding of the hands. To give thanks is to hijack our hearts from vanity, from vain things. Okay, third observation. And this is a bit of a heavy one, but I, I think this is so important. And hopefully it was a huge eye-opener for me this week. Um, again, like I said, look at verse 18 in Acts 14. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. <clears throat> Basically, whatever, guys. <laughs> You're Zeus and your Hermes, Whatever but I just want to peek into next week's, next week's talk. I'm just going to read the very first verse because it's sort of heavy. It says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So what I want to see with this observation is that ingratitude is the kiss of death. Ingratitude is the kiss of death. Ingratitude is this dark passage into moral and relational decline. Paul is calling on God's people to turn towards truth. Right? That's what he's doing. Turn towards truth. And what's man's response? It's murder. What's the response? It's murder. It's a beating. It's violence. It's hate. Paul will later write a New Testament letter called Romans, and it's this super thick, rich, dense, gritty letter about uncompromising truths. But before Paul rants about these horrible ways that man has broken the heart of God, do you know what the very first thing of that list is? Look at verse 21. It should be on the screen. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or what? Or give thanks or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ingratitude is the kiss of death. These verses in Romans basically explain the catastrophe that is man because it has come down to the refusal of giving thanks. And the last observation, gratitude to God means finding thanksgiving, means finding um, to be able to give thanks in everything. In everything. This is the point I want to finish with, but be able to give thanks in everything. Gratitude is discovered in the cosmic with Paul's list and in the most common, in the heavens and on our dining room table. Even the most common elements of everyday life. Paul just says, food, right? The ocean and sharks and orcas and octopi. Oh, and food. From the cosmic to the common. Old school preacher Charles Spurgeon says this, let us daily praise God for common mercies. Not just miracles, not I just got the job for common mercies. How many of us today praise God for rain? For common mercies, common as we frequently call them, and yet so priceless 
that when deprived of them, we are ready to perish. Think of Christ. Think of Christ at his last supper. If you're familiar with the story, basically his death meal. What happened is Jesus took a loaf of bread, he broke it, and then what did he do? What does the Bible say? He gave thanks. Get this, Jesus held every day. Think about this. Jesus held every day mundane, overly familiar elements like boring old white bread. And he tells those who follow him, you eat this, think of me. When you eat this, think of me. In the commons of every day, we have something to be thankful for. And like breadcrumbs, they lead us back to the one who supplies it. It's not about the provision, it's about the provider. When you eat this, think of me. Turn from vain things to a living God. See, Jesus, the model of our everything, he was a thanksgiving machine. Jesus was a thanksgiving machine. If you know the, how the gospels lay it out, I mean, Jesus is about to multiply some fish and some bread, and he looks up and he's like, I'm about to give thanks. The Last Supper, I'm about to give thanks. He's walking up to one of his like BFFs. His name's Lazarus. He passed away. He comes to his tomb. And before he raises him from the dead, he looks up to heaven and gives thanks. He is a thanksgiving machine. Thanksgiving is the evidence. Gratitude is the evidence of a life saved by Jesus. See, Christians are grateful creatures. Famous German professor and monk Martin Luther referred to this. He says, gratitude is the basic Christian attitude. So it's like basics 101, Christians are grateful creatures. Christians are grateful. That's basic 101 for anybody who follows Jesus. That is our basic attitude. Christians are to see this earth, the fish, rain, whatever, harvest crops and food, even boring old bread, and it should boil our blood with thanksgiving because it's all a gift. It's all a gift. And all these gifts are from a gift giver. See, once we see the ocean and once we see bread, we are to think of him, the giver, right? And our hearts are then supposed to swell with praise. There's no receiving of grace. There's no chief joy. There's no full life without a heart of gratitude. Thanksgiving is essential to a full life. Thanksgiving is essential to a full life. See, in the midst of your hardships, we must look to find gratitude, turn and look. I mean, the Bible asks us, commands us, and tells us, be thankful in all things. Now, I want to make a strong clarification. The Bible says, be thankful in all things. It does not say, be thankful for all things. Does that make sense? See, there's a chasm of a difference between thankful in and thankful for all things. The true and living God is the only possible way when Brian and Amy receive um, upsetting news about their daughter, it's only because of the living God that they can find thanks in it. They're not thankful for these complications. None of us here are. We're thankful for the God who's in control of all. It's God, not the situation. Um, Old school writer and theologian, one of my favorites, G.K. Chesterton says, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or you take them with gratitude. As followers of Christ, Brian and Amy, us, nor should we ever come to a hard situation and just take it for granted. 
Christians, think about this. What if your recent or current pain could see great comfort if we just stopped to be grateful? I have conversations with many people here and there's heartache after heartache and there's pain and there's confusion and there's frustration. What if some of the most immediate medication or balm to your heart is let's just stop and be grateful for what we do have from these vain, hurtful, hard things to a living God. So, I was thinking, um, I don't know, yeah, I was thinking that Thanksgiving is so much about receiving as we talked about. Thanksgiving is about receiving. And uh, does anybody here just totally stink at receiving, receiving things? Cool. Two people are honest. God bless you. The rest of y'all liars. That's good. Anytime anybody wants to say something nice to me or give me something, my immediate reaction, my immediate response is just to, to deflect it, right? I want to deflect it. Everybody's trying to be kind. No, no. <laughs> Praise God. It's just immediate. Get it out of here. Some people here, close enough, they go, receive. Shut up and receive. But I constantly, constantly push away and not wanting to receive because my stubborn, disgusting little heart, maybe you can bear witness, is I immediately think, mm, what's the catch? <laughs> what's, where's the string, right? What do I have to do for you now? See, letting people in hurts, right? That type of stuff, I, you're fearful of, of what type of hurt it could cause. And so I have these horrible thoughts. And so I have learned and I am learning that to receive is to truly be thankful. To actually receive, to let friends and community and family and others speak into your life and to shut up and receive it is healthy. It's very, very healthy, especially with God who has so much he wants to give. He has so much he wants to give. Um, I read this story recently. Um, Maybe it was a very famous story in the 80s. Maybe some of you remember it. I don't think any of you were born. We'll find out. On January 13th, 1982, I wasn't even born yet, so there you go. On January 13th, 1982, a commercial jet took off from Washington National Airport en route to Fort Lauderdale. It climbed only 200 feet before crashing. The cause later to be determined due to over-icing and pilot air. And there was only um, four survivors. Four survivors. One of them was a young woman by the name of Priscilla um, her husband and her son perished within the plane crash. So she emerges from the debris and she tries to swim to safety in the freezing water and she was completely blinded by jet fuel. She could barely see anything. She was unable to move her frozen limbs and, and, and just completely still in shock, she started to sink and she started to die in the same water that has just taken her son and husband. And so there's people on the shore who are watching this. And one of the bystanders um, watching her sink said, enough was enough. And he jumped in. He couldn't stand it no longer. He dove in and it's basically into the river of this jagged ice. And as she was going under, he saved Priscilla. And he dragged her to shore. And there's this amazing interview some years later. Priscilla was asked about your rescuer. I mean, four survivors. And she goes, tell me about your rescuer, your hero. I mean, do you have a relationship? What's going on? And she just simply said these words. She goes, I never cease to thank him every moment of my life. I never cease to thank him every moment of my life. See, God has much, much, much to give. 
but all of his givings from the ocean to food to harvest to whatever is a distant, distant second to his rescuing, his rescuing son, Jesus Christ, to his outstretched arm. Again, truly Christians hearing this type of stuff are grateful creatures. It's all we can be once we've realized we're, we've been saved from empty gods. See, like Priscilla, we've become unceasing to thank him for every moment of life. So, an ending, like Christians, if you want a life-transforming um, moment, if you want our lives to be transformed, then do this. Do this. And it's going to be so simple, you're going to hate it. But rise every moment, look out your windows, look to the heavens, look to the ocean, eat a piece of white bread, whatever, and thank the living God that you have been rescued from empty things. Do it every day. Thank the living God that we have been given good and perfect gifts from the Father of lights. See, gratitude and thanksgiving is like a muscle. I try to read a few books on Thanksgiving this week. Every single author, from the New York Times to these books I read, they, every single person, you know what they said? Just get in the habit of doing it. It is like a muscle that must be flexed and worked out. The more it becomes a natural inclination and habit, the more it becomes part of our life. We are to form a habit of thanksgiving. Until we can center ourselves on what we do have, on what God has given us, Christ, the greatest of all gifts, until we can center our lives on the life he has given us, we will constantly be looking for another life. Right? Isn't that what we just do all the time? Until we're grateful for the life we have now, it's going to be constantly looking for a new one. Yeah, the industry wasn't for me. I'm going to try this now. Now, she wasn't for me. I'm going to try this now. No, that wasn't for me. I'm going to try this now. So if you're here and you're not familiar with the Christian faith, hopefully you're seeing that it's gratitude is what drives and fuels Christians. Don't be confused. Many people have been hurt by the church or hurt by pastors or whatever, and they think it's guilt that fuels us. They think it's fear that fuels us. They think it's earning. But not so with Jesus. Christians, we are grateful creatures. So in a few days when you're surrounded by friends, and crazy family. Can I get an amen? When that happens in a few days, or I don't know if you're by yourself eating a hungry man dinner. They're delicious. If that's what's happening on Thursday, may we see the mass abundance of what we have out of that. So I want us this week, I want a posture of this life, but let's start with this week. I want us to see this incredible amount of abundance we have and then ask for only one more thing. See, everything we have and only ask for one more thing. And this poem that I love will sum it up. It says, thou has given so much to me. Give one thing more, a grateful heart. Not thankful when it pleaseth me, as if thy blessings had spared days, but such a heart whose pulse may be thy praise. Tonight, may your, your heart pulse with, with praise. It's been said, unexpressed gratitude is ingratitude. So let's express it tonight. Let's express it tonight, even in the most challenging of circumstances. Even in the most challenging of circumstances, find gratitude. Turn tonight and look. Even in the most dain elements, bread and a cup. We have right here in my right and my left, we have bread and we have the drink. Christians, communion, this is for you. It's a celebration of gratitude for your great gain and his incredible loss. 
Paul again has said these words. I want to read this to you. And it says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Friends, if you're here and you're hurting this holiday season, if you can't bring yourself to be thankful, please let us pray over you. If you're just like, there's just no way. Brian and Amy, how do they do? There's just no way I could be like, no. Then let us pray for you. You know what's so crazy that I hear every week, which is so crazy, is people tell me all the time, they're like, you know what? I've been coming to this church for a year or whatever, and I still never received prayer. But I went up and I received prayer, and it was so good for my soul. It's good for my heart. So let that be true of your story tonight. If you've not received prayer, would you allow us to operate as the community and allow us to give to you and you receive? So there's going to be people on that back wall. There's going to be people on that back wall. They're wearing lanyards. Go and receive prayer tonight. And lastly, one of the key ways to express our thanksgiving, the Bible says, is through song and through praise. Friends, fellow grateful creatures, come to the carpet, kneel, stand, sit, whatever, raise your arms, but worship. Worship, worship, worship. I'm going to end with these verses. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the, joy, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Tonight, friends, church, collective church, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Amen?